Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be talking about 10 scientists who uh, have come to believe in God. And we'll talk a little bit about how that fits in with their uh, positions as scientists. And so without taking too much time to get into it, because this could be a long video, let's just jump right in. And we're going to begin with Francis Collins. By the way, just the other day, I released a video um, previous to this one on Francis Collins and his conversion experience and what led him to believe that there was a God. And and so today he's one of those that we're going to be discussing, but we won't spend too much time on him because I do have a whole other video on him that's about 33 minutes long, so you can go check that one out. But let's go ahead and begin with Francis Collins. We are here to talk about big questions, maybe the biggest question of all. Does God exist? I won't give you a proof tonight, but I hope I will give you some things to think about, things that have led me from being an atheist to becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. Perhaps the most widespread fundamental assumption in the intellectual West today is that there is no reality beyond what natural science discovers and that there is no authority or good higher than the freedom of the individual. Now both science and individual freedom are good, but followers of Jesus like me have a different view. We believe that both the deepest reality and the highest moral meaning or good authority are to be found in loving relationship why is nature right okay now now you might think yeah but that didn't have anything to do with science directly well what you're going to see we're going to talk a little bit about science here um although i'm not a very scientifically minded guy i appreciate science love science but um i'm not a scientist and i admit my own limitations as far as that goes but i'm able to uh look at the scientific evidence that we have and talk about it however um on this last point this guy's you say well he's not really talking specifically he may be a scientist but he's not specifically talking about science well that's right but what i want you to understand here is that one of the big problems that we have in the world today of uh, the 21st century world is there are certain suggestions that we kind of, because we live in this world and we get the dirt kind of of this world on us, we get the we get some bad uh, suggestions that come to us from our culture as atheists and as Christians that kind of make their way into our thinking. One of those is that science is the only way to really come to knowledge or is the best way to come to knowledge. And uh, I wanted to talk, press back a little bit on that. Uh, some of you might not be aware, and I, I sometimes presume that everyone listening is aware of all the things I'm talking about, and some of you might not. So I need to point this out, that often what we see, particularly among uh, atheist apologists on the internet, is an embrace of either scientism or something like scientism. And you might not know what scientism is, but basically scientism is the affirmation. Uh, you have kind of a hard scientism and a soft scientism. A hard scientism um, is the idea that uh, science, scientific discovery, is the only way to arrive at truth, things that we should consider true um, and, and believable. <coughs> Excuse me. And so uh, that, that is there a lot of the time. The thing is, that is completely untenable for the following reason. If I ask you to accept the, the, the belief that um, science, natural science, is the only way to arrive at truth, um, the question then could be asked, well, that statement itself, that science is the only way to arrive at truth, is that uh, a statement that can be confirmed by science? Well, no, it is not. That's a philosophical assertion. That's a starting point that you begin with. And we'll talk about starting points uh, in just a few moments a little bit more. But it, that means that that statement is self-referentially incoherent. It's kind of like if I said all English sentences are less than three words long. Well, if you refer to that sentence to itself, if it's true, it's false, right? It doesn't work. It's self-referentially incoherent. And so for the same reason, when we think about 
uh, scientism, the idea that the only things that should be believed are those things that can be confirmed scientifically, that itself cannot be confirmed scientifically. And so it's a philosophical starting point. Now, what some people who recognize this will say is, okay, well, m maybe a soft scientism is true. Uh, maybe a soft scientism is true. And a soft scientism uh, would say something like, well, okay, maybe not all things, but, but in general, so natural science is the best way, the most reliable way, uh, the highest way of arriving at certain truths. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, um, th it's a little bit awkward uh, that, you're, that your starting premise is one that cannot be uh, defended by the thing that you say is the best way and most reliable way to get to uh, these truth claims or these knowledge claims. Your starting point can't even be affirmed by the thing that you're saying is the best way. So there's a little bit of a problem there. Secondly, most of the people who will say that they're soft, most people don't know, especially most of the people that you'll encounter on the internet are not aware of these distinctions. But if you share with them these distinctions, many of them will, and some of them are, okay? Again, as I always say, if you're out there and you're, a, say, an atheist apologist on YouTube, or uh, you're just a commenter or just a YouTube viewer, and you're an atheist, and you, and you are aware of all these things, well, then fine, I'm not talking about you. Uh, but uh, for most, they're not really they haven't really uh, read as much epistemology as would be necessary to parse through all these things, and so they wouldn't know to say, "Well, I'm a soft scientist, a scientism uh, advocate." Now, what you'll find interestingly sometimes, even among people who are aware, uh, is that they'll say things like Matt Dillahunty has often said in debates. He'll say it like this: He'll say, "Now, I've been accused of of affirming scientism, and I don't affirm scientism, or maybe I do, or something like that." He'll say that. And I, I, I'm not going to try to guess somebody's motivations, and I generally like Matt Dillahunty. Um, however, I, what I suspect is going on there is a little bit of, I know that if this Christian apologist that I'm debating with is a clever one, he's going to point out the self-referential incoherence of scientism um, and point out some of these problems. So I'm going to call it out before he does, but then I'm going to say, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, to kind of brush over it. That way it's been called out, I won't get stuck with it, uh, and we can just move on. But that in no wise resolves the problem, and that needs to be mentioned uh, every time something like that occurs. So uh, this idea that science is the only or best way to get to truth is an awkward position. In the former case, it is uh, self-referentially incoherent and should be rejected on those grounds. And in the soft case, the, the latter case, um, it's a really unusual place and very difficult to defend because your starting premise is one that cannot be defended or doesn't seem to be supported, supportive of the idea that the best way to get to truth is uh, like that. Secondly, I want to point out that uh, one of the reasons that these, one of the things that you're going to see these scientists uh, again and again point out is uh, not only do they clearly not accept scientism, even though they are scientists, just want to let that sink in. If you're wondering whether you should, which of these two positions you should affirm, some form of scientism or not scientism, then consider the fact that the people telling you to accept some form of scientism are overwhelmingly atheist, uh, you know, uh, popularizers, and the people telling you uh, who are exhibiting a, a rejection of scientism are scientists. That's an important thing, I think, to consider. Um, secondly, I want to point out that the difference between first-order and second-order disciplines. Uh, philosophy is, and I'm going to read to you here from uh, the uh, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig. Everyone should have this book. Uh, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, you should have this book, especially if you're a person who doesn't know what you are and you're trying to figure that out. This is a very helpful book that covers almost everything imaginable that would be interesting to you. And it says uh, on 
let's see, I've got the, uh, an older copy, but on page 307 of my copy, uh, the chapter on scientific methodology, chapter 15, it says, philosophy in, is in part a second-order discipline that studies the assumptions, concepts, and argument forms of other disciplines, including science. By contrast, science is a set of first-order disciplines. In philosophy of science, we investigate questions of philosophy about science. Philosophers and historians of science, and not scientists themselves, are authorities trained to deal with these types of questions. In science, we investigate questions of science about a specific realm of, science, uh, of scientific study. Um, here, scientists are the authorities, right, in the point where they're talking about science, scientific stuff. But here are some types of first-order questions scientists formulate, all right? So you want an example of what first-order scientific study is like, the questions that they ask, are and the, ask and the second-order stuff that philosophers would be more inclined or historians to look into. Here are some of the types of first-order questions scientists formulate. What is a covalent bond and how does it work? What is the structure of a methane molecule? What makes an ecosystem stable? How does the holding relationship between mother and young infant affect later childhood development. Where will the moon be on November 1st, 2062? By contrast, here are some second order questions, philosophical questions about science. What is science? It's a pretty important one. What is science? And are there clear, necessary, and sufficient conditions that some intellectual activity must have for it to account at, for it to count as science? Is there such a thing as the scientific method? And if so, what is it? How do scientific theories explain things? How do observational data confirm a theory? If a scientific theory is a good one, that is, makes accurate predictions, harmonizes with what we observe, does that mean that the theory is at least approximately true and that the unseen theoretical entities like electrons postulated by the theory really exist. So you see, you have this first order discipline of something like science, and then you have this second order um, kind of, kind of overhanging discipline that looks at that and then says, okay, so what does that mean about the nature of reality? So science cannot be the thing you go to for answers on everything. You need philosophy. You need some of these other second order uh, disciplines to make sense of what you get um, from scientific discovery. So that's what you're going to see reflected in what a lot of these scientists have to say is they clearly don't hold to this weird scientism that's been rejected long ago in terms of the academia or should have been and overwhelmingly has been. And, it, and, they, and they understand the differences between first order and secondary disciplines that most people on the internet don't seem to understand. Regular, why does it follow regular laws that even, why can we understand them? And we're so used to these ideas today that we don't realize that they weren't actually that obvious to most people through most time. And the reason for that is that if you just live in the natural world, it doesn't seem to be always that regular. It seems to be capricious. It changes itself all the time. And so what you can show, I think quite, quite um, decisively historically, is that these ideas, these metaphysical underpinnings of science, uniformity, regularity, intelligibility, have deep theological roots. Their roots go back to a, a long history of theological reflection on a God who is faithful and sustains the world, therefore, in a regular way. Okay, so if you want more on that, check out the previous video that we posted on uh, discussing Francis Collins. And the reason I ask you to do that is because there we talk about the uh, much of what he's talking about there. It's like you've got these three realms, and we saw there Sir Roger Penrose uh, is saying this is a great mystery. You've got the abstract mathematical realm, you've got the world, you've got the physical uh, realm of physical objects, and then you've got consciousness. And what is the unity between these things? Because take mathematics for example; it it, it so well. Um, um, 
is applicable to the physical world while, while being in some sense divorced uh, metaphysically from the physical world. It's in the world of abstract things. And then you've got our consciousness that is able to apply mathematics and understand all of these things. And similarly with these, with these laws, the laws being the way that they are. And all of this sort of reflects on theistic ideas about uh, a mind and a creator. And so that's an important thing to consider. But uh, just simply the idea that the universe could be expanding, not, not sort of expanding into something, but just that the, the space-time metric changes and that there could be a beginning of time is just incredible. I mean, if you go back to before uh, Einstein's work and you go to Newtonian world, you know, there's basically a coordinate system. There's X, Y, and Z, and T, right? And these are just fixed, and things happen in this grid, and you describe physical processes and events by putting them in this grid. And the idea that the universe was uh, changing is just completely ludicrous to many people. And then along comes Einstein, and now we realize that space-time not only can expand and contract, but through the work of Hubble, it actually is. The universe is expanding, and so if you play it back, there was a time when the universe was incredibly small and tiny. Um, that to me is just mind-boggling, and it actually adds to, yet again, adds to my sort of confidence that, uh, that the creation story has some merit. Okay, so now notice what he's talking about. He's talking about something that is a bit teleological, uh, that is, has to do with uh, a purpose or end that, that is clear in what seems like a design, but he's more talking about something cosmological. He's talking about the expansion of the universe, and if it were on, he kind of brushed over this, but if you were to play, if you had a recording of it, and you were to play it in reverse, you would see the universe, instead of expanding, going back into a, a point that is smaller than a golf ball. And so the question is, where, what caused all of that? How did the universe come to be? That's an amazing thing. Now, um, th this brings us to a question, and this is going to come up again and again, so we might as well talk about it right now. This stands behind one, my, one of my favorite arguments, which is the Kalam cosmological argument. The, and for those of you that are already familiar, uh, maybe you can skip ahead on this point, but the Kalam cosmological argument basically uh, says uh, everything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause for its existence. So um, we've, you could talk about you know, issues that you find with each of those things, but for most people it's not that controversial that if something begins to happen or begins to exist, there has to be a cause for its beginning to happen or coming to exist. And uh, the universe is like that. The universe is in a state of expansion. If you played it back, it goes back down to a, what seems to be a beginning. Now... Uh, there, so, there, so there's some scientific evidence for a beginning for the physical universe. Now, one of the favorite things for atheist apologists to say is, well, yeah, but uh, we don't know how long it was the size of a golf ball or smaller than that before the expansion. We don't know if it just was always that way and there's an infinite past. We don't know if, it came, if, there, if there was a beginning for perhaps our local representation of the universe, uh, but then prior to that, uh, there was, you know, there was a multiverse or a vacuum model or something like that. Um, and, and we don't, we don't know about that. And so this is where I would say, and this is where the scientists would say, and we're going to get a hint of this as we move forward, that yes, the scientific evidence just gets you back to a beginning. The scientific evidence doesn't really give you a multiverse. The multiverse uh, is something that is described or uh, postulated on the basis of mathematical theories, but we, we, you know, there's no way to ever actually see that. And if you watch the Francis Collins uh, discussion that I'll link in this video and I linked in the last video, then you'll see that he goes over that. You, if you're going to take that position, then fine. But just 
just understand you're never going to be able to have access to that in the way that you'd like to have access to it because uh, it's outside the physical universe and so science studies this physical universe. Now, that being said, this is where you move over from science to the, this second order realm of philosophy and there we can actually go further. Amazing. Science only takes you so far because it is limited by the study of the natural universe. And so uh, we can go further with philosophy and with philosophy we can say, go ahead and have your multiverse, go ahead and have your vacuum model. It doesn't help you not one bit because you're just kicking the, the can back up the road. And the reason is because you cannot have a past infinite universe. You can't have a past infinite multiverse. And what I mean by that is, if you imagine time as a line and today is a dot on that line, so draw a line and put an arrow at either end of the line and put a dot right in the middle that represents today. We understand the line going forward and we don't have too much of a problem with the idea of this line moving forward <clears throat> without an end, although we could talk a lot about that too. But if you draw, if you look at the, the left-hand side of your of your line and your arrow is pointing that way, then what you'll see is this represents time extending infinitely into the past. And when we say infinite, we don't just mean a really long time. We don't just mean uh, 10 trillion years or 100 trillion years or something like that or whatever number you want to come up with. Um, we mean that there literally was no beginning and it stretches back infinitely without end. And as far back as you want to go, it's still further. And, uh, and, and you never reach a beginning because there was no beginning. Now, uh, when we use infinites in everyday language, we don't usually use it precisely. That is, people talk about an infinite number of grains of sand on the beaches of the world, but there's not actually an infinite number of grains of sand. There's a, there's a number. We, it's just a ridiculously big number but there's a number there. Same with stars in the sky. You know, there's, oh, there's an infinite number of stars. No, there's not. There's not even an infinite number of atoms in the physical universe. And if there's a multiverse with trillions and trillions of other universes just as big as ours or bigger, and there are atoms in all of those, then those atoms... Uh, all of them, <laughs> there is a number. It's an unbelievable number, but there is a number. That's not what we mean by infinite. What we mean by infinite is there simply is no number because it literally goes on forever. That's why you often see infinities uh, described with like a, a number eight on its side, indicating that it just goes on for forever without end. Okay. So, uh, so think about that for a moment. The, the universe cannot be past infinite, and the reason that the universe cannot be past infinite is because it's, if it's really like that, we would have never arrived at this present moment. And why will we have never arrived at this present moment? Because if it literally goes back forever, then no matter how much time on the timeline has passed, there is still infinite, there's still an infinite amount of time left to go. And so you would never make any progress at all. Now, what some people will try to do is they'll talk about Zeno's paradoxes, or they'll talk about the fact that we can have an infinite set, and, and we can talk about infinite sets. That's what we call a potential infinite for one thing, and that's not an actual infinite. So actual infinites would be an infinite that exists in reality, and my position is that there are no actual infinites. A potential infinite is an infinite that exists only conceptually. You can imagine or you can think about it. Uh, but even with an infinite set, even if we gave you that, there's still a starting point and an ending point for that infinite set. You can still contain it. You can't do that with the physical universe because the other problem with the past infinite universe is if there really is no beginning, then you don't even have a starting point. So we can imagine a starting point and then at least conceptually it going on forever, infinitely into the future. But this makes no sense going in reverse because there's not even a starting point to get to this moment. It's like, as I've said many times before, and I'm not the one to come up with it, but it's like trying to jump out of a hole without a bottom to it. You, it's senseless. If you're trying to think, how would that even work? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Absolutely right. That's why a past infinite universe doesn't work. And a way of thinking about why it is that we 
couldn't cross a past infinite to arrive at this moment. Uh, imagine the infinite library where you have an infinite number of books and every other book is red and every other book is black. If it's truly an infinite no uh, library and there's not a number of books, it's just infinite. If you took away half the books, like take away all the red books so that all you have left is black books, then you would still have the same number. You'd have an infinite number of books. You just have all black books now. So uh, a past infinite universe, a past infinite multiverse doesn't work. It falls apart. And uh, even if you don't think it falls apart scientifically, it falls apart mathematically, and that is a very important thing to understand. And so that's an example of how science shows you that it seems like there's a beginning for this local representation of the universe or for this universe. But if we talk about a multiverse or a vacuum model or what Sagan used to term the cosmos, which is just a Greek word that means world, then all then what you're you're saying there is um, you can't get to that, but philosophy can, and philosophy shows you not just indicates, not just implies, but shows you that it isn't infinite. And so for that reason, um, if you understand first order and second order things, you understand the difference between philosophy and science and how they interrelate and all those things, you get to where something like what this guy says is true, even if you think it only applies to the local universe. You may have to go back and listen to that section a couple more times, but it's important that I lay it out because a couple of other people are going to bring up this very, very powerful concept that I think is absolutely damning for atheism. Oh, by the way, so the reason that that Im uh, implies a creator is because if, you, if, if it goes back to before space and time, Time. If the physical universe is space, time, and matter, and um, uh, we're talking about the coming into being of space, time, and matter, then whatever caused the universe is spaceless, timeless, and non-material. And uh, it would have to have a mind for the following reason. One, as we've talked about already, minds would have causal powers. In those three realms of the abstracts and uh, the physical and then the um, uh, and then the, the mental, the, the consciousness, uh, the only one that, that has those causal powers on both that would represent a source for um, mathematical abstracts and things like that, but also could serve as a uh, beginning, a cause for physical stuff coming into existence would be the mind. But even if you don't like that, in a, a state of spaceless, timeless nothingness, uh, there is no determinism to work on a cause. Therefore, you would have to have uh, something that has free will to serve as the cause. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom, free will, uh, well, minds have that. And so you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind serves as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. So that's why even scientists like this guy say, when I look at running the, uni the universe is in a state of expansion, uh, that tells me there's good reason to believe that theistic creation is correct. I, I certainly have colleagues who speak very much the way I used to speak. You know, like, how can you believe in something that you can't, uh, you know, prove mathematically or show in this way. And in fact, a friend of mine who's a mathematician used to say that to me. How can you believe in something that, you, you know, you can't prove? I only believe in things I can prove. And then one day he was reading a history book. And his, his friend, who happened to be a Christian, said, you know, why are you reading that history book? <laughs> you can't prove any of that. <laughs> and he realized there, there's a lot of truth that has happened in the past that we can't prove today like you can a mathematical and furthermore of course all of our science and our math rest upon axioms and things that we take at faith so people who think that they can't deal with faith are really just deceiving themselves
So what I'm fond of saying... Okay, so now she brings up a really important point, which is um, most of your scientifically-minded people, even the people who claim to affirm some kind of scientism, they do believe they can know certain things about history, right? Uh, this came up in the debate with Matt Dillahunty that I had, where uh, some questioner in the audience asked him, well, wait, how can you know about... Don't you believe you can know what happened in the past and you don't have absolute empirical you know, proof of that um, and repeatable you know, evidence for that? And he, if I remember correctly, he said, well, yeah, certain things like I remember that we had this conversation just a few moments ago because I have access to that I was here for that I saw it and all those kind of things um, I, I have good reason to believe that my parents uh, copulated on a particular night uh, however many years ago because here I am today as the result of that uh, because my mother became pregnant and I was born uh, it's all interesting but here's the problem with that for all Matt knows he could have uh, someone could and he may have mentioned this because uh, I think he's aware of this sort of thinking but someone could have aliens could have implanted all of his memories into him just five minutes ago about everything in the past and he can't really know so uh but but most people even whatever they will say epistemologically they do believe they can know things about the past that's just the way that it is and so as a result of that uh you know that that tells you that this this hard scientism just goes out the window and that's kind of what she was hinting at and that also brings us uh, to the to the question of what about jesus i mean our evidence our evidential side of things for the resurrection of jesus is a historical case. I present a historical case for Jesus, and so do others. And that is based on this sort of abductive reasoning, inference to the best explanation, given the historical things that we have really good reason to believe. What is the most likely explanation for what happened in the past with respect to Jesus? And by the way, that's the same way that we go about history uh, with respect to any historical event. And so uh, we have good reason to believe that uh, Jesus thought of himself as God's agent to bring about the kingdom on earth. Uh, the uh, Universally, uh, historians agree upon that. You always have outliers, but universally, historians agree about that. Um, they agree that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. They agree that the disciples had experiences that they thought were appearances, that at least they thought were appearances of the risen Christ, such that uh, a liberal scholar Paula Fredrickson says, as a historian, I don't know what they saw, but they must have seen something. Thing. Uh, because it caused them to change the way that they lived and functioned, and they were willing to sacrifice, and they were willing to change the way they worshipped, and all these kind of things, multiple people. And then uh, historians uh, agree that uh, these people were willing to at least uh, suffer for what they believed, and uh, willing to become martyrs for what they believed. And so I've, I laid all that out in a video response to Bart Ehrman, and I'll link that in the description as well as my debate with Matt Dillahunty. You could go there and check that out. And so as a result, what we have here is a historical case for the resurrection of Jesus, where if you plug in the historical criteria, things like uh, does your explanation have explanatory scope? That is, does it account for uh, all, most of the details or a large number of the details instead of just one or two? Uh, does it have explanatory power? Does it seem to fit nicely without you having to uh, try to force it in like a puzzle piece? Is it is it less ad hoc instead of more ad hoc? Ad hoc meaning basically you have to make up details in order to make it fit. Uh, it's less ad hoc. Uh, is it, does it have plausibility more likely to be true than false. When you plug all these things in, the resurrection case fits what historians are looking for. And so as a result, um, uh, we make a resurrection case. And it looks like these many of these historians take a look at that, and they, or many of these scientists like, take a look at that, and they say, okay, if scientism is out the window and I'm, I can be open to philosophy and history, well, then we have a really good case for uh, the resurrection. It's only when you're talking about atheist apologists who want to ditch things like uh, that kind of historical investigation of the resurrection, because it's so far in the past, and how could we ever know? And we just have these reports and things like that. 
that. Uh, basically, they're they're ditching history, and it's I think the underlying thing is this a affirmation of scientism, whether they're willing to do that verbally or not. So let's keep trucking. Thing, and I'll say it again tonight: is I don't have the faith to be an atheist. To me, the universe does require an explanation. The philosopher's very ancient question of why is there something rather than nothing is still a valid question. And as many people, including physicist Paul Davies, have pointed out, um, the laws of physics themselves demand an explanation that stands somehow out of science. Whether that is a physical explanation or a spiritual explanation, nature is not self-explanatory. And ultimately, if I had to tell someone why I am a theist, it is because precisely I think that nature as we see it, it requires an explanation. And the more we know of the world from science, the more it begs that explanation. I stop. Now, again, this is exactly what we've been talking about before. When he says it, it has to be outside of science, what he's meaning to say is it has to be outside of nature because it's nature that we're trying to explain. And science studies nature. So whatever the cause of nature is, is definitionally going to stand outside of the realm of science. Now, we can get hints at it by looking, doing an internal investigation and seeing is there evidence within the, you know, the universe for um, something that seems like design, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but the explanation for the natural world must stand outside of uh, the natural world because a thing can't serve as an explanation for itself. This also hints at what is known as a contingency argument. Uh, this idea of why is there something rather than nothing hints at that as well, and here's the idea. A contingency argument is very similar to like the Kalam cosmological argument that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, but it's it's uh, it's it's a little bit simpler to explain actually because what we're trying to say with a contingency argument is you have basically things that are contingent and things that are necessary. Necessary things are things that that must exist. They will exist. They necessarily exist. They can't not exist if in reality. And so. Uh, so uh, we would say that God is necessary, but put that aside for a minute. Um, you, contingent things are things that didn't have to exist. Uh, they owe their existence to something else. So if you're holding a pencil in your hand, that pencil owes its existence to something else, somebody who made the pencil. Um, the, the, the materials that made up that pencil owe their existence to something else. Um, you, using the pencil, you owe your existence to something else, and that was your parents' uh, uh, copulating again to give birth to you, right? Your parents owe their existence to something else. Uh, the, the desk that you might be sitting at or the car that you're driving in owes its existence to something else. These are all, what we mean by this is these are all contingent things. Well, what sort of things are not contingent? Well, the things that are not contingent are the things that don't owe their existence to something else. And there has to be a, a, at least some things or at least one thing that is necessarily existent. Otherwise, you get that same sort of infinite regress that is impossible where it just goes back and back and there's no first thing, right? You lead to this infinite regress. And as we saw earlier, these infinite regresses are impossible. So there must be a necessary first uh, cause. There must be a necessary first thing that is necessary, right? Everything else is contingent. And so that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So when we talk about why is there something rather than nothing, uh, this physical universe is made up of contingent things and is itself contingent. And so there must be something necessary that serves as the cause of nature. And it can't be natural because those are the things that we're trying to explain. Let's keep going by saying there is a God who created the universe uh, and he's not an impersonal God. He has declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us and also gives us free will to choose him or not. And our purpose then is found in being in relationship with him.
the order. Okay, now I wouldn't have included that one, even though I think it's beautiful, and I'm glad we have a scientist saying such a thing. Um, but he doesn't talk too much about the science, but uh, there you go. So let's keep trucking. Structure of the natural, natural laws, to me, suggests a god who ordained and conceived those laws. The astonishing complexity of living things, to me, suggests an architect who cares about those things. The okay, the, so he says, and this is a chemist talking, and he says, the complexity of these things <laughs> indicates. Now this, we've talked about uh, cosmological arguments, we've talked about contingency arguments. Well, this is what we call a teleological argument. Telos referring again to purpose or ends. Uh, there seems to be purpose in design. The universe seems finely tuned for life. Um, when you th think about uh, the, the things that have to be exactly right, these numbers that I'm about to give you represent the maximum deviation from the accepted values that would either prevent the universe from existing now, not having matter, or be un uh, unsuitable for any form of life. Now, that would be like the ratio of electromagnetic force and gravity, the expansion rate of the universe, the mass density of the universe, the cosmological constant. These things are, are, are uh, un the, the, the idea, the, the, the specificity is exceedingly rare and unlikely. Let's take one for example. What about the ratio of electrons and protons? That is 1 in 10. The chances of that is 1 in 10 to the 37th power. Now, the degree of fine-tuning is difficult to imagine. Dr. Hugh Ross gives us an example of the least fine-tuned of the above uh, for examples in his book, The Creator and the Cosmos, which is reproduced here. So here's his example. One part in 10 to the 37th power, that's a 10 followed by 37 zeros, by the way. One part in 10 to the 37th power is such an incredibly sensitive balance that it is hard to visualize. The following analogy might help. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. In comparison, the money to pay for the U.S. federal government debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. Next, pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents the same size as North America. Paint one dime red and mix it into the billion pile, billions of piles of dimes. Um, blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 37th power. That's in Creator in the Cosmos, page 115. So uh, that's, the, that's the incredibly unlikely. That's 1 in 10 to the 37th power, and that's just the ratio of electrons and protons. The ratio of, electron, uh, of electromagnetic force and gravity is 1 in 10 to the 40th. Uh, expansion rate of the universe, 1 in 10 to the 55th. Mass density of the universe, 1 in 10 to the 59th. Cosmological constants, 1 in 10 to the 120th. This is getting exceedingly unlikely in order for you to have this finely tuned it's just an incredibly finely tuned universe to allow life to form and that's incredibly important by the way every time i talk anything at all about design there's people in the comments that say yeah but the rest of the universe is hostile to life Okay, the fact that the rest of the universe is hostile to life does not speak to the fact that this part of the universe is not hostile to life. Um, and so also it's interesting that, you know, we're in a very specific, there's a great book called The Privileged Planet. It talks about how we are in exactly the right spot that we would need to be in the universe in order to observe the universe around us and understand the fine-tuning of the universe. And uh, on top of that, we don't know eschatologically what's going to happen, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when, when we believe as Christians uh, that uh, we are all resurrected one day and we experience eternity with God. We don't know that he's not going to let our scientific inquiry continue and that we begin to uh, or continue to investigate our universe. So maybe it's so big because, hey, there's a lot to explore in the coming days. If you think that sounds crazy, maybe this isn't the channel for you because it shouldn't shock you that on a Christian apologist channel, I believe in the reality of heaven. I believe in the new heaven on the new earth. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that theism is true. And if that is shocking to you, if you're one of those people that says, I can't believe that in the 21st century, we still have people that believe these things. Well, guess what? Uh, surprise, surprise. I'm a reasonably well-educated person that still believes all of these things. Let's keep trucking. The fact that there is something rather than nothing there suggests the existence of a creator of that something.
And, the fa and indeed, one of the joys I have in studying the natural sciences is that I learn a little bit about what God has done. And in the process, I think I come to understand a little bit of what he is like. He is much bigger, much grander, much more awesome, much more majestic than I would have previously imagined. Uh, by the way, it's always very interesting to me that when we run into, uh, you know, even some of our atheist popularizers will say that when they look at the universe around them, it, it does prompt in them something like a desire to worship. They just recognize that that's nothing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, but it's like I've been saying with a lot of things, like we've seen with miracles lately. We saw it with near-death experiences. We saw it with, um, with uh, uh, the, these uh, visions and dreams that Muslims are having of Jesus. We've seen it with the philosophical arguments. We've seen it with the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. It's just uh, we've seen it with the nature of human freedom, free will. We've seen it with morality. It's just that the more you look at all of these things, what you begin to discover is that there are so many things, uh, particularly like think about your own impression that your own intuition, that you have libertarian freedom, that you really are able to make real free choices. I mean, after all, many atheists call themselves free thinkers, when if atheistic determinism is true, the last thing you are is literally is a free thinker. Uh, the, the thing about it is, all of these things, we have to just say, well, they're, they're just, it's, we have to live as though they're true, but they're not true. We have, to, we have to just pretend that they're true to get around in life, like morality, objective morality, and free will, and things like that. But it's not really true. I'm sorry, you're just having to deny the way that the universe really is in order to, uh, to function in it. And that is, sits so awkwardly, I think. And again, this issue of this desire to worship, that we see the world around us, could it be that we're made for worship? Um, certainly seems that way. See, science, it provides a set of tools that are useful for investigating phenomena in the natural world. But as powerful as it may be for dissecting planetary motion and battling cancer, it's not really intended for questions like why did life forms originate in the first place? Now notice he's talking again about the first order issues of science and the second order issues of philosophy. It's, it, science is not equipped to answer uh, the questions of why. They're just equipped to answer the questions of what and how. They're not, they're not equipped to answer the questions, the philosophical questions of why. And we're free to speculate opine and have our beliefs, but science is not equipped to answer questions like this. So like when he talks about the question of first life, you know, that's a really interesting one because what many people today want to do is to say, well, there must be a multiverse because we, we admit that it is exceedingly unlikely that we would have life as we do uh, and that abiogenesis would occur. And so the explanation for that is perhaps there is a multiverse and many of those universes don't have life like this, but uh, we, we happen to be the lucky, happy recipients living in the universe where this actually occurs. But understand that science doesn't have access to that multiverse, except in mathematical equations uh, that are just mere hypotheses. And so that's a matter of, again, a 21st century English dictionary explanation of the word faith. You're just taking that on a naturalism of the gaps, a faith sort of thing. But if you exercise some Occam's razor uh, thinking, which is to shave away uh, those variables that are not necessary uh, to explain the phenomenon, uh, well, I can't think of something that extrapolates variables out more than an a literally infinite multiverse, which is impossible anyway, but a literally infinite multiverse, or really a multiverse at all, you're extrapolating out your explanatory variables beyond what's necessary to answer the question. If, it's, if, it, if we have good evidence that it's uh, complex in a way that seems to indicate design, then the answer is design. And the only reason that anyone would deny that is if they have um, some sort of a commitment to naturalism. This doesn't itself mean, let me be clear here, that there is an answer somewhere else. It just means that we have to be faithful to what science is, and that we can't extend the purview of science beyond what it is capable of addressing. 
Absolutely. The Lord led me to And I, I've used this many times before, but I'm going to say it again now. What people who affirm scientism want to do is they want to say, it's like we have this metal detector that represents science, and it's so good at detecting metal that therefore sand and trees and water don't exist. Science is so good at studying the natural universe that physical matter is all that exists. This is absurd. What you need is a different detector in addition to your metal detector. We agree that the metal detector of science is good at studying the natural world when it's done right. The question is, does that mean that's all there is? No, it just means that the only, you're trying to say that because my metal detector doesn't uh, detect sand, sand, we don't have any reason to believe that sand exists. This is ridiculous. The fact is you just need a different detector. You need a sand detector or a wood detector or a water detector. And when it comes to the nature of reality, we have things that are detectors for other things besides the natural. And that is these questions of uh, philosophy and even perhaps history and even personal experience. And these things need to be considered when you're doing a fair investigation. Uh, if you if you say, I'm only going to allow for natural explanations, which is what we call metaphysical naturalism. If you say, I'm only going to allow for naturalistic explanations, then let's not be surprised that what you arrive at is only naturalistic answers because you set up the question such that a supernatural explanation was not allowed for. And I don't have time to get into that story, but it's a fascinating story. Uh, how he led me to genetics, it was not what I had planned to do. Um, but my goodness, I'm so happy I did. I can't imagine myself doing anything else. But I see it all as part of his plan to lead me to that and to help me to see um, identity in a whole different way. And when I think about my own identity, I think of Christ and um, how he created us. He created us in his image. So we had identity with him. And then we sinned and his grace, we talk about grace, his grace, through his grace, he wanted to bring us back in relationship with him and to bring us back in identity with him. Yeah, so when when uh, she looks at this as a geneticist, she says, all this does is deepen my appreciation for what it means to uh, be uh, a person who has their identity in Christ. So, look, the thing about it is when you look at these scientists, when you look at these um uh, individuals who have devoted their lives to this, uh, to science, who are who are saying there's there's no conflict, there's no rub. This rub that you're seeing is is non-existent. It's 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 just not a problem at all. You know, uh, yeah. My doctor, for example, my my general practitioner is one of the most well-known doctors in our community. I mean, he's on television. Uh, I think once a week answering medical questions that people have. He's celebrated um, for his knowledge of medicine and his practice of medicine. Yet he tells me that that uh, this this idea that that science and religion can't mix. I've never run into that. In fact, he rejects evolution and still have perfectly well functions as a general practitioner. So, you know, I, look, the, the, this is, we've been sold a bill of goods and you're accepting the, if you've been believing something like this weird scientism, then what you're accepting is um, the cultural suggestions from the entertainment world and some educational institutions that does not reflect what the highest minds recognize is true about these things. I've had a good time with you here. This has been a straightforward and somewhat complex discussion, but I hope you've enjoyed it and I'll catch you next time on Trinity Radio.